Welcome to the Voyages and Travels of the Ambassadors, the epic story of a 17th century trade expedition from Germany to Persia that failed so completely its leader was publicly executed upon his return. This is episode 13, The Great Persian Replacement Theory. Before we get started, I've had difficulty matching the content with the teasers at the end of the last two episodes. In episode 12, I was supposed to get 60 wagons and 120 saddle nags delivered to the ambassadors, and tell you the cost of one slave. And in this episode, I am supposed to get out of town before dawn and fire cannons at a rainstorm. We'll get there eventually, but I've encountered certain topics in my daily reading that push me off course. It feels like the literary equivalent of getting shipwrecked 50 miles south of Durbant. I'll try to do better going forward. Also, I'll be taking a break for Christmas, but we'll have episode 14 ready before the new year arrives. And with that, the worst day of the Persian year is the Wednesday before New Year's Day. The people know this not only by tradition, Adam Valerius tells us, but also by experience, and they celebrate it as the fourth sad Sabbath. Nothing good ever happens on that day, so no one does any business, no one signs contracts, no one holds a party, and, perhaps most important of all, no one pays anyone any money. Some people spend the entire day counting whatever money they have, while others go without speaking. Many people sprinkle their homes and possessions with river water, hoping to fend off any misfortune. If they meet anyone they know on the way home from the river, they throw water into his face. If they meet a best friend, they may pour a whole jug of water on him, the theory being that anyone so doused with water cannot fail to be happy for the rest of the year. Young unmarried people wade into the river and splash anyone who comes to fetch water. Some carry clubs and break the water jars carried by the older people. These young folk are looked upon as ill-presaging birds, Olarius says, so that those who can keep out of their clutches think they have avoided many misfortunes that might have happened to them that year. Some people even go to the river before dawn, because teenagers are known in every culture for their habit of sleeping in. This tradition of blessing one's house with water can be traced to St. John the Baptist, Olarius tells us, and it is in commemoration of his baptism that the Persians perform the ceremonies. True it is indeed that the Persians have a certain veneration for that saint, and that they go to this day upon pilgrimage to his shrine in Damascus. And it may be that was the intention of whoever instituted this festival, but now there is no track to be seen of any such thing. The great Umayyad Mosque in Damascus, built by Caliph al-Walid I, who reigned 705-715 AD, still has a shrine which purportedly contains the head of John the Baptist, who was honored as a prophet by Christians and Muslims. Birds that are omens of evil are common throughout history, but I could find only two books that mention the Persian feast of the fourth sad Sabbath. The first is the book by Olarius himself, and the second is a book by William Turner, printed in 1695, that appears to quote Olarius. The title is The History of All Religions in the World from the Creation Down to This Present Time, in two parts. I could find no specific examples of why the Persian teenagers were considered ill-presaging birds, 
And the Encyclopedia Erotica says Persians have no elaborate folklore around bird omens. The entry on crows mentions only three items. Seeing a partridge in the morning augurs ill, but seeing two is a good omen. If a partridge caws early in the morning, some news will be received from afar, or a traveler will return home. And if a hunter shoots a crow in the morning, he will return empty-handed in the evening. The Greeks and the Romans, on the other hand, used the behavior of birds to foretell the future. The word auspices, from the Latin auspicium, literally means looking at birds, and the person doing the looking was called the augur, the diviner or soothsayer. The English word augur was first recorded around 1540 to 1550 and still carries the same meaning today. In the Middle Ages, a mystical bird called the Caladrius could prophesy someone's death just by looking at him. According to an early 13th century Latin manuscript in the British Library, an ancient Greek book said, If anyone is ill, by means of this Caladrius it can be found out if he will live or die. For if the man is destined to die, it turns his face away from him, and by this sign people know that he is going to die. If he is destined to live, it directs itself towards his face, and as though it would take all the illness of the man upon itself, it flies into the air toward the sun, burning up as it were his infirmity and dispersing it, and so the sick man is cured. Dung, taken from the bird's intestines, is also said to cure blindness. If you are interested in reading more about the Caladrius, see George Druce's article, 1912, from the Royal Archaeological Institute of London. Because I'm fond of poetry, I'll quote two English poems featuring the phrase ill-presaging birds. First, The Tears of Amaryllis for Amentus by William Congreve, 1670-1729. Well, I remember what sad signs ye made, what showers of unavailing tears ye shed, how each ran fearful to his mossy cave when the last gasp the dear Amentus gave. For then the air was filled with dreadful cries, and sudden night o'erspread the darkened skies. Phantoms and fiends and wandering fires appeared, and screams of ill-presaging birds were heard. And second, from a 17th-century poem called The Temple of Death, included in a larger 1673 work by Sir Charles Sedley. Collection of poems written upon several occasions by several persons with many editions never before in print. In those cold climates where the sun appears unwillingly and hides his face in tears, a dreadful veil lies in a desert isle on which indulgent heaven did never smile. There a vast grove of aged cypress trees, which none without an awful horror sees, into its withered arms deprived of leaves, whole flocks of ill-presaging birds receives. Poisons are all the plants the soil will bear, and winter is the only season there. Even today, some Americans believe that having birds fly into the house is bad news. The vernal equinox marks the first day of the Persian New Year, and Olarius tells us they celebrate it with great solemnity. In 1637, the date is March 20. The Persian year consists of 12 lunar months and is 11 days shorter than ours, so the day may not necessarily fall on the same calendar date every year. 
the ambassadors send Olarius and a few others to the palace in Shimaki to wish the governor a happy new year. They find him at table with his astrologer, who rose up ever and anon, and taking his astrolabe, went to observe the sun, and at the very moment that the sun came to the equator, he published the new year, the beginning whereof was celebrated by the firing of some great guns and the playing of all sorts of music. An orator tells stories of the Shah's victories over the Turks, the Uzbeks, and other enemies of the nation, and the remainder of the allegedly solemn day is merrily spent in eating and drinking, whereof we participated sufficiently. The governor, his lieutenant, and his physician, all of whom are sufficiently drunk, tell the Germans that the governor would like to visit them at their lodgings before they depart the city, but that he is going on a journey and may not return in time. Olarius tells us he does not believe this story and proceeds to give us what he thinks is closer to the truth. The doctor says he has consulted the stars and it is not a good time for the governor to visit our ambassadors at their lodgings. So they continue drinking. The governor says that one of Ambassador Crucius's page boys is so good-looking that he wishes he had been his own son. He asks his physician if that is not true, and Olarius, who has made his low opinion of the doctor well-known, takes another shot at the man. Having taken another view of the heavens, though the air were not very clear and it was nowhere near nighttime, the doctor answers that, If he went and lay with a woman, he would certainly get as handsome a boy as that was. The governor watches the boy a little longer, and then, taking the doctor's observation as prophecy, gets on his horse and rides away. Islam has a fierce reputation for opposing alcohol, but, as we have seen since our ambassadors arrived in Persia, that reputation was hardly warranted in the 1600s. Historically, some shahs, caliphs, and sultans took it more seriously than others, and historians also note that Muhammad had a progressively negative take on drinking. From calling wine good nourishment, to a warning against abusing it, to insisting that wine leads to sin, to a prohibition on attending prayer while drunk, and only then banning alcohol altogether. Faruqi Sistani, one of the most prominent court poets in the history of Persian literature, wrote in the 11th century that Although wine is forbidden, I believe that it becomes licit for lovers when spring arrives. God gives us his blessings as we drink. Come, and don't regret it. Safavid Shah Ismail, who at the age of 15 declared himself the ruler of Persia in 1501, suffered a catastrophic defeat by the Ottomans in 1514 and was never the same man again. Instead of governing, he took to hunting, drinking wine, and spending time with young boys— and alternately trying to legitimize Islam and engaging in ritual drinking combined with sex orgies. His son, Shah Tamasp, was more devout. Ruling from 1524 to 1576, he gave up drinking wine and instituted the practice of enslaving Christians from the regions west of the Caspian Sea. There was at Shimaki a Persian slave named Farouk, writes Olarius, who, being a Muscovite by birth, had been stolen and sold into Persia, where he had been circumcised while he was very young. Farouk likes the Germans because he can speak his own language with some of them. After many visits over the past three months, he warns them about their Persian interpreter, George Rustan. 
You will remember from episode 11 that he had participated in a scheme with Ambassador Brueggemann to prevent Olarius from taking Arabic language lessons. Now, Farouk says that Rustan has written to some of his friends in Isfahan that, although he has lived a long time among the Christians, he has not forsaken the Islamic faith, and he will be with them soon enough to give them further assurances of that fact. Rustan had been born in Persia and traveled to England as a young man, where he had been baptized as a Christian. Some years after that, he went to Moscow, and when the Brueggemann mission came through, he begged to be hired as their Persian interpreter. And he was hired, but only after providing written assurances that his only motives were to earn money for his family, to trade in Persia, to return to Moscow, and thence embark on a career as a merchant. As Hilarius tells this story, the Germans are preparing to travel to Ardabil, an important city known for its Persian cats, and as a former burial place of Persian kings. We will learn more about the city later in the podcast, but for now, Olarius informs us it is where Rustan declares himself a true Muslim, at the tomb of Sheikh Sefi, the founder of the Safavid family. He finishes the trip to Isfahan, where he claims sanctuary, puts himself under the Shah's protection, and remains in Persia. The last time we hear of the man, the ambassadors are on the way home, and the governor of Shimaki says Rustan had made several bad reports about the Germans, for which he should have been beheaded. On March 24, the governor sends the traditional New Year gifts to the Shah, but this time he needs to curry favor with the court, because of his brother's recent disgrace and resulting execution. So he sends more gifts than usual, including several excellent horses, several camels loaded with Russian leather, several of something that Olarius calls rich stuffs, and thirty bags of swans down. What makes the value of his gifts extra special is the great number of handsome boys and girls. Silk and cotton are the two biggest industries in Shimaki, and entire families are employed—women, men, and children. The marketplace, or bazaar, is on the south side, and there are three wholesale warehouses not far away. One for the Russians, who sell tin, leather, copper, furs, and other commodities. And a second for the Tatars, who sell horses, women, young boys, and pretty girls, which they have stolen from the frontiers of Russia. The Jews share part of the Tatar warehouse, selling the best tapestries in the country, silk and cotton, gold and silver brocade, bows, arrows, and swords, all at a very reasonable rate. In the Tatar market, one can buy a 15-year-old boy for a hundred crowns. The Persian system of converting Christians into royal slaves of the Shah was similar to the system created in the Ottoman Empire. Christians under the Sultan's rule paid a blood tax to Istanbul in the form of their sons and daughters. The most famous of these slaves might be Roxolana, the daughter of a Polish priest who was captured by Crimean Tatars and taken via the Black Sea slave trade to Istanbul, where she eventually became the wife of Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent. In Persia, Shah Abbas I was faced with winning a two-front war against the Ottomans to the west and the Uzbeks to the east, and a decade of palace plots, intrigue, and treachery forced him to reorganize the Safavid state which he did by replacing many officials and soldiers with slaves, forcibly imported from Georgia and Circassia. Known as gulams, i.e. slaves of the Shah, 
They took positions in the military, the royal household, and the political administration. In 1598, one of these slaves became commander-in-chief of the armed forces, and eventually 20% of high-level government administrators were slaves. As an example of the expanding role of the Gulams, 20,000 Armenians were imported in the year 1604. In 1616, 130,000 Georgian prisoners were brought back to Persia. Abbas also weakened tribal cohesion and destroyed the existing social order by moving large groups of people from one area to another, by settling Caucasian immigrants in strategic areas, and by taking royal control of large swathes of land in a process similar to what we call eminent domain. As you might expect, certain provincial powers did not react well to the changes, and successive shahs were forced to deal with ongoing rebellions. Abbas had, in effect, embarked on a social revolution that would, after a century of gradual decline, eventually bring down the Safavid Empire. I will not claim that America's own leaders are committing the same immigration mistakes made by Shah Abbas, or the Ottomans, or the Romans for that matter, but I will note that rulers throughout history have used migration policy and migrants themselves as weapons in their social revolutions. As I record this in December 2023, Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois has noted an incredible demand for immigration, an incredibly low military recruitment rate, and has insisted that illegal immigrants should be made citizens in exchange for serving in the military. As we come to the end of 2023, truly enormous numbers of illegal immigrants have been distributed to the four quarters of the country, causing financial problems and social unrest in the provinces. For his part, Shah Safi, to whose court our ambassadors are traveling, put down a rebellion in 1633 by executing the governor of Gilan province and many of his officials. The massacre marked the end of a system where the extended Safavid family held power. After this, power resided in the person of the Shah and his palace entourage of women, eunuchs, and slaves. The episode also makes me wonder why the governor of Shimaki's brother was executed, But if Olarius knows, he never gives us the reason. The governor of Shimaki and his lieutenant, whom we have already met, control the whole province of Muskur, which we mentioned in episode 9, but which might also be called the province of Shirvan or Dagestan, depending on the map one consults. They are charged with the administration of justice, both civil and military, and to that effect they maintain an army of a thousand men, paid for with government tax revenue. Valerius tells us that the lieutenant has oversight of the revenue and the disposition of crown lands. When war breaks out, the governor takes the army where the shah orders, but his lieutenant stays home and takes command of the province. The governor, whose name is Arab, A-R-E-B, keeps a very noble court but is also a person of very low extraction, the son of a peasant. He also tells us this doesn't matter, that the Persians are very indifferent as to a man's birth, provided he be otherwise a person of courage. But I wonder how true that is in light of the ongoing social revolution fomented by the Shah and the execution of the governor's brother. The governor owns his current position to his valor at the successful siege of Erevan in 1636, which we mentioned in episode 10. 
the Shah had made him controller of the ordinance, and the old governor of Shimaki was killed in the same battle. Valerius tells us that Arab takes no small pleasure in showing us the wounds he had received in that war, and in telling us how many Turks' heads he had brought to his king. On March 27, 60 wagons for the baggage and 120 saddle nags are provided by the governor for the next leg of the journey. They leave the same day. The ambassadors follow the day after. The governor had left the city with the caravan of New Year's presents to the Shah and has not yet returned, thus leaving his lieutenant in charge. A large sum of money arrives at the ambassador's quarters, meant to reimburse them for their expenses in the city. It amounts to 60 tumans, or about a thousand crowns, Hilarius tells us. A tuman was not an actual coin in the Safavid currency system, but a unit of accounting, or a kind of ghost money on which all coins were reckoned as multiples. In the 1930s, one Henry Filmer recorded his travels in Persia and wrote that one tuman was equivalent to about five American dollars at the time. Unfortunately, Ambassador Brueggemann calculates that his embassy has spent more than 2,000 crowns during their stay in Shimaki, that the three-month delay has been costly in more than financial terms, but even with that being so, he did not request the reimbursement. Valerius is sent to convey the complaint to the lieutenant governor. The reply is that he did not order the reimbursement himself, that he is merely following orders, that he is much troubled at the inconveniences which the ambassadors have been put to, but that it was neither his fault nor the governor's, since it had been impossible to obtain enough horses and wagons in so short a time, and that the ambassadors can make all the complaints they want, even though it will do them no good. And then he invites the ambassadors to dinner. The ambassadors accept. They leave the next morning, two hours before sunrise, and at Brueggemann's orders, they sneak out of town to deny the lieutenant the honor of seeing them off. He gave order that we should dislodge and depart without any noise, Olarius writes, and that all should go on foot out of the gates, where we took horse. They make ten miles or so before discovering that a Scotsman named Alexander Chambers is dead in his wagon, even though he seemed fine when they had loaded the baggage. They stop to bury him at the bottom of a little hill covered with hyacinths. After another few miles, they make camp in the open. A storm comes up, attended by lightning, thunder, wind, rain, snow, and frost, and Ambassador Brueggemann fires the artillery several times, being desirous to outvie the thunder. Hilarius tells us that night is the coldest of the journey so far. The next day, Brueggemann is so transported with passion that he came to railing and spitting when complaining that the lack of camels has caused him to leave several cannons behind in Shimaki. He calls the governor a liar, and that either he will kill the governor or the governor will kill him. Some members of the group are apparently so cowed by Brueggemann that they want to remain camped in the open until the cannons can be fetched. Others say they prefer heat and food, and that the sick men won't last another night in the cold. Hilarius does not say they take a vote, but they resolve to go forward, and after another ten miles they reach the top of the mountain of Shimaki. There is a fair plain at the summit, even and fertile ground where rain, snow, and hard weather are no strangers, but today they find a clear sky, a cheerful sun, and a country wholly covered in lush green vegetation. The descent is easy, 
and they spend the night in huts which Tartarian shepherds have set up near their flocks. Apologies for the repeat here, but in the next episode, we will cross a bridge made of boats, witness a fantastic kind of transmigration, and discover licorice plants as big as a man's arm and more sweet than any in Europe on the voyages and travels of the ambassadors.